Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Dan, pleasure to be back with you. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, Dan. You know, I almost took a detour to Las Vegas to go to the Gruden hearing against the National Football League. I'm glad I stayed home because it turned out the whole thing was live streamed on Facebook. So thank you for your recommendation and advice You're welcome. not to waste three days of my life to go out there at a cost of probably what would have been $1,000 all in when we had AJ Perez in the courtroom watching the proceedings closely, and then we're able to get him as a guest today on Conduct Detrimental. So you saved me $1,000. I'll pay you a finder's fee. Name your price. $1,000 sounds good. So yes, Dan, <laughs> we do have uh, AJ Perez on the podcast. Many of you have probably seen Dan's interview with AJ on YouTube, but we wanted to put that on the podcast. So AJ was live at the courtroom. He obviously did not listen to me when I gave him, uh, I didn't give him the advice not to go, but Dan, we're going to let you take your victory lap on the case. You have, uh, and I, I was wrong. I did say the case is going to move to arbitration. You did not. So we're going to, obviously, uh, we're going to talk about the Gruden saga. Obviously, the case is going to remain in the courtroom and the case was not dismissed. So we're going to hear, Dan, we'll, we'll let you do your victory lap and we'll talk to AJ. Two other stories that we want to cover this week in our busy world of sports. And Dan, I should mention, I'm coming back from Denver, hopefully a case that I can talk about at some point in time. You know, Dan, you and I do handle uh, sports cases and gambling cases in real life. We don't just talk about it in a vacuum. But yeah, we're going to talk about Deshaun. Watson, certainly a big story. Deshaun Watson's lawyer, Rusty Harden, has made the rounds, made some interesting comments. We'll get into it. And the other one, Dan, Dan Snyder, back on the radar. He's buying a, uh, the team is buying a plot of land in Virginia, brings up some shades of our St. Louis Rams saga. So we certainly have some thoughts on that. Dan, where do you want to start in our, in our football episode today? Yeah, I think we should get Deshaun Watson out of the way because as we as we sort of transition into Snyder and Gruden, there's sort of this connectivity between those two cases. And I think we should we should lead off with the one case, the one legal controversy around the National Football League that doesn't have any you know sort of overlay with everything else. So the floor is yours. And you've been following this saga very closely where it just seems endless. So what's the latest? Yeah, so we, we mentioned it briefly, and I, I'm sure you and I have uh, we've covered it online. I'll, just for our you know people that have not been following, but then I should say a, a friend of mine. I was with a, a fellow sports attorney over the week, and I was saying, "Hey, did you see the latest in the Watson case?" And he goes. I only get the updates from your Instagram stories. So Dan, we, we sometimes we got to cover stories because I can't assume our listeners are following all of our tweets and Instagrams and LinkedIn stuff. So sometimes we just got to lay out the facts. So last week, the story was that Deshaun Watson was meeting with the NFL and that he was also taking a bunch of his teammates to the Bahamas. So that was the story on the Watson front. Now, Rusty Harden, Deshaun Watson's lawyer, spoke with mutual friend of ours, Gabe Feldman, sports law professor over at Tulane. You know, Rusty Harding was actually surprisingly very candid. Maybe if you ask me, maybe a little bit too candid, you know, with what's going on on the Watson front. So according to Rusty Harden, Deshaun Watson has now met with the NFL for three days, not three consecutive days, but on three different occasions. On each such occasion, the NFL has been interviewing Deshaun Watson. And Rusty Harden made a very interesting comment, Dan. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. He goes, Gabe asked him, have you been objecting to any of those questions? How does that forum work when the NFL is asking your client questions? And Harden essentially said, well, these are trained prosecutors and, you know, they're asking pretty tough questions, but maybe uh, I have to contact my malpractice carrier because I have not raised one objection the entire time. Uh, pretty candid statement, Dan. I'll, I'll, we, we can stop there for a second. Kind of crazy that Harden said that in a number of levels. 
Well, you know, an, an experienced, legendary, you know, Texas trial lawyer is sometimes known for embellishment and self-deprecation. I think you kind of take that with a grain of salt. Rusty Harden has the pelts on his belt and the years in the courtroom. So uh, he's a pretty formidable trial warrior. He knows how to guide his client, but maybe in this case, maybe discretion would have been the better part of valor and perhaps shielded his client a little bit better. Here's the admission that people are talking about. Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk, picked this up in a pretty, pretty damning article. You know, Rusty Harden talks about a lot, and we're going to talk, uh, at least we'll break down why, why he said what he said. You know, the bigger picture, and Dan, as you know, I used to work for the Giants in their PR department. When I grew up, the, the method was always get in front of the story, right? Don't let the story kind of dictate itself. And Rusty Harden actually said something, which before we get into these uh, admissions, Rusty Harden said, with a story like this, in this day and age of Me Too culture and, you know, accountability culture, he goes, we knew we were not going to get in front of the story. We knew that social media was going to paint this as a loss for Deshaun. And he goes, all we could do is be behind the scenes and do what we could. And he goes, I, uh, essentially, he goes, I tried to play the Tony Busby game initially by kind of going back and forth with the media at a certain point. I've stopped doing that. And I'm just now letting the, the case work itself out. So he said that, Dan, essentially, that he wanted Tony Busby and he dared and he goaded and he basically bluffed. Rusty, you know, Rusty Hardin basically tricked Busby into filing these criminal complaints, because according to Rusty Hardin, if a prosecutor was going to look at these complaints and actually look at all of the evidence, he felt that a prosecutor was going to paint this to a grand jury in such a way that, you know, there would be no indictment return. So, Dan, the story that, that Rusty Hardin tells, which I, I stopped and I had to listen to this a couple of times in the interview, that in his office, in Rusty Hardin's office, him and his associates were high fiving each other once they found out that Tony Busby actually filed 10 criminal complaints. And that, I think, was his way of saying, you know what, I can beat an indictment. I can't necessarily win on the civil case ahead of time, but I can beat an indictment. I know how to do that. Dan, again, do you think that's embellishment or do you think that's actually true? A lot of this is 2020 hindsight. Who would actually want to see their client go before a grand jury from which criminal charges could have uh, ultimately emanate. That just sounds like a very, you know, risky and, you know, renegade type strategy. I mean, you're basically placing your client in jeopardy. And now I, I what I really take issue with, though, is Rusty Harden's, you know, kind of hands off type of approach and let the process play itself out. What I would be doing again, he's representing the client. He's an experienced trial lawyer, but I would be trying to negotiate a solution or a compromise with the National Football League. Get this resolved because once you do that, you kill Tony Busby's cases. You take all the leverage away from him. I, I, I would say, look, let's try to work this out rather than have your NFL investigation go on in perpetuity and place the Browns and place Deshaun Watson under this cloud of jeopardy for the next year and a half. Why don't we try to negotiate some kind of a plea bargain? Let's say four games, six games. If I was Deshaun Watson, I would just go to the races on six games right now and just remove that cloud, you know, from your career. And now all the leverage and the pendulum would swing completely back in his favor relative to Tony Busby, because then Tony Busby could go on television all he wants. He has nothing to hang over Deshaun Watson, no criminal case and no NFL disciplinary proceeding. Let him go to trial two years from now with 23 lawsuits. Good luck to you. I think that would be the play that I would make to try to work out a compromise with the league on a, on a multi-game suspension and just be done with it. Dan, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think the longer this case goes on, the more questions are going to be raised. The one looming one that still has not been answered, why someone during a pandemic would 
have had 40 different masseuses in like a year and a half period. And when, when again, you're employed by the Houston Texans, which have world-class masseuses that work there, right? So I guess the, the main admission, and then we don't have to spend so much time on this, people are free to, to you know, to, to check this out and, and make their own assessments. But something new came out, which is, again, the story that Mike Florio picked up, that of these 22 women, three of these incidents resulted in some type of sexual activity. Whether or not that was consensual or non-consensual remains to be seen in an actual court of law or, or the NFL investigation. But Rusty Harden is adamant that those three interactions, you know, he's admitting that three interactions were consensual sex of some sort. I believe he said it was it was oral sex. So, you know, if you just do the numbers, right, maybe three doesn't sound like it's that much, but it certainly blurs the lines. And once you're admitting to some type of sexual activity, I think that's going to raise the NFL's eyebrows here, right? So, you know, that's that's the admission here. You know, the other part of this is that uh, Harden believes that some type of suspension will be rendered before the upcoming season, whether that's June, July, or August. But that confirms our suspicions that the reason that that contract was structured in such a way mm-hmm. to pay Deshaun Watson a $1 million base salary for the upcoming season was because the suspension was expected. All the more reason to reach a deal now, whether it's six games, four games, eight games, the Cleveland Browns aren't going to win the Super Bowl. What the Cleveland Browns and Deshaun Watson want are some path forward looking ahead to the years 23, 24, 25, because this thing goes on for another year without any closure. Then then you're placing one more NFL season under this sort of, you know, legal cloud and he needs to move on with his career. And I can't see that he'd be facing a a one-year suspension when a police report was never filed initially. And then when an ensuing report was filed, two different grand juries failed to return indictment. So I think we'd probably, probably be looking at a suspension of less than one year, something that would be manageable. And for the Cleveland Browns, and and more importantly for Deshaun Watson, it's not going to take anything out of his pocketbook, you know, of of a substantial nature, given how the contract was structured. And maybe Roger Goodell doesn't like that, but that's just the nature of the beast. And if you want to levy an eight-game suspension, well, that imposes pain on Deshaun Watson because he won't, there'll be one more half season in which he won't be able to continue his career, making it a full year and a half of no regular season activity. That's harm in and of itself. I guess as we, we move on, we should, you know, not too much to add to this, but Harden does confirm that the Dolphins required, that the Dolphins tried to get a deal on the trade deadline last year, and they required all individuals to settle their cases. So there was a lot of reporting out there that about three or four holdouts that didn't want to settle their cases. And Harden confirms that to be true. But he does say part of the reason they were holding out is not because they wanted to put Watson's feet to the fire, that they did not want to sign an NDA as the individuals because they maybe wanted to go on talk shows or do whatever else with an NDA. So that seems to be one of the sticking points as to why this case is not settling because of the, the disagreements, whether the NDA and Dan, we, we talked about this. It's, uh, all, it's all about the money. Eventually. I mean, you well, raise the settlement amount to a high enough level, then the NDA issue is it's so important. The problem is we talked about this a year ago, but for our new listeners, so which of which, you know, there are certain people that haven't listened to it, Dan, that there was an allegation, which Harden repeated that Tony Busby, the attorney for these 22 women, he wanted an NDA because he didn't want anybody to know the amount that each case was settling for, which gives you the indication that maybe this is going to be like a $20,000, $10,000 settlement. And then it would say like, what was the point of all of this? Right. So let's see, let's see when, when push comes to shove, but we knew, I think we did know that at least one of these cases an offer was made for about a hundred thousand dollars, but 
but if you multiply a hundred thousand oh, dollars yeah. times 23 okay. plaintiffs, you write a check for 2.3 million dollars and you're completely done with it. And when you know, in light of Deshaun Watson's annual salary, I know two million dollars is not a check that anybody wants to write. And you know, given the proportion of the settlement amount to his annual salary, it really is a drop in the bucket. And at some point, he just has to you know step up and get rid of all these cases, even if he thinks he did nothing wrong, because this is costing him in many other ways as well. Right. I, I think memory serves, I think it was a $230 million guaranteed contract over the life of the deal, fully guaranteed $2.3 million, Dan. That would be a literal drop in the bucket. And then we already have a, he could have served that suspension maybe already with the Texans. Now he's got a year with the competitive. Dan, I'm, I'm good with this one. You got anything else to add before we move on? Just I hope for his sake, there aren't any more masseuses out there. And this covers the whole landscape. In the absence of a class action lawsuit, he's not releasing anybody right. beyond those 23. So let's hope that right. that's it. Well, let's see. It's it's a very complex story that has been kicking around for now a year, year plus. Okay, Dan, let us move over before we get to your interview with uh, with AJ Perez on the Gruden stuff. Let's go over to our friends over in Washington. So there were certainly reports that the uh, NFL, uh, as they say, was quote, counting the votes. And that's a story that you and I have covered at Dan Snyder, all of his various issues, the sexual harassment stuff, the toxic workplace, the cooking the books allegations that, that enough, when is enough going to be enough? So enough people had reported that the NFL was actually considering holding a vote, in which case under the NFL's rules, 24 owners would need to vote to oust Dan Snyder. So that story, there's not much to add in it. We'll see if they're actually doing it. The legal story in all of this, Dan, seems to be a story that reminds us again of these St. Louis connotations. The Washington Commanders, for those that don't know, have actually had their location based out of Maryland for the last couple of years. They used to play actually closer to D.C., but they've been playing uh, actually their home base. FedEx Field has been in Maryland. So a story kind of broke out of nowhere that they had bought a plot of land for, I think the number was 100 million, it might be a little bit more from Virginia. So maybe people didn't put two and two together. But in Maryland, there was obviously already another NFL team, that's the Baltimore Ravens. So does it make sense to move jurisdictions and move all, you know, down in the DMV, move to Virginia? Sure. But the reporting is there's, you know, a tug of war between Virginia and, hey, the, the commanders also want to move back to D.C. and maybe they'll stay in Maryland. So all of a sudden, we have these uh, tug of war between potential municipalities, between state money helping fund the stadiums. And Dan, all I could think of was the decision, right, when uh, Stan Kroenke bought that piece of land in Inglewood, California, and he's like, we're not using this for a football stadium. Dan, we, you and I just did the uh, Quimby on the St. Louis Rams, mm -hmm. uh, the CLE for those guys, and we were kind of rehashing that. It seems as if Dan Snyder and the commanders have made up their mind to move, just move the stadium to a different state. Dan, is that is that your read on it? I, I did an interview and I was pretty adamant. I go, this is not a threat. They've already done it. It's just a matter of how much state money they're going to get here. Well, this isn't a, a typical relocation where you're moving from one major market to a, a completely different market. You know, Maryland, Virginia, D.C., these various stadium locations are probably located all within an hour of one another. But this is really being motivated by uh, two factors or three factors. One, Daniel Snyder wants to build this so-called Snyder City in Virginia that you know is consisting of a, of a sports stadium, entertainment complex, sports betting, and the two critical core components of his proposal in Maryland, D.C., and, 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 and Virginia are going to be predicated on being able to have a sports betting license. Now, Maryland is going to have sports betting licenses available for professional sports teams, but they're not guaranteeing any retail sports books or related 
entertainment slash sports betting districts. Virginia is going to give him exactly what he wants, which is the ability to have one of the few professional football stadiums that house an in-stadium sports book and create an entire entertainment district around that activity. And who knows, maybe it could be the site of a future casino. But moreover, Virginia could be possibly giving him the kind of public subsidies that would exceed what what the state of New York is giving the Buffalo Bills. So he's looking for a publicly financed stadium, a sports betting license, and an entertainment district completely on the public's, almost completely on the public's dime. And if you've got a sports betting license and an online sports book, that's basically, you know, generating, it will spin off revenues of, you know, it could be 20, 30, $40 million a year and, and then on up. So for Snyder, this is a, a bigger play than just the location. It has everything to do with the money and who's going to pay for the stadium plus the sports betting aspect. But he's got to he's got to survive these various gauntlets in order to be able to realize his dream of Snyder City. And I don't think he's quite there yet. You pointed out the congressional investigation. You've pointed out the ongoing or the new sexual harassment allegation concerning his interaction with a former team employee. And that's being investigated. I don't know if it's by Mary Jo White or by somebody else. So you have those two issues. And then he kind of looms on the periphery of the John Gruden lawsuit. And we're going to we're going to pivot into Gruden next. But if that case goes into discovery, we may learn quite a bit about whether Dan Snyder is the source of the leaking of these emails. Pause Uh, pause there, because I want to I want to before before we move on. First of all, you're missing one critical element here too: the state attorney generals in the DMV, as they say, you know, uh, Maryland, Virginia. They're also investigating him or circling on mm-hmm. this consumer fraud issue from yep. the cooking of the book. So, yeah, it's an it's an oddity that Virginia might be contributing money to a team with the state attorney general also investigating. The team. So that's number one, Dan. Also, before they have this move, they got to rename it to something better than Snyder City. No one's going to Snyder City. I no, that, that, sure, that, that, that's that. That's just sort of a, a DBA or, or sort of an informal name. But we're also overlooking the relocation criteria that might also apply. You know, unlike, unlike Stan Kroenke, who lied about the reasons for his land purchase in California in 2013, I think Dan Snyder and the Washington commanders have been, you know, sort of transparent that, yeah, they're eyeing this location for a football stadium. But just because it's in the same overall you know, regional market doesn't give Snyder and the commanders an automatic right to relocate, even intra-market relocations and intra-home territory relocations are still subject to the relocation guidelines, relocation policies and procedures promulgated by the uh, National Football League. So he still has to go through a certain process and get the vote of three quarters of the other owners, which I don't think he would have great trouble getting unless the pendulum swings against him on a legal side of things where he begins to sort of, you know, the the walls begin closing in on him and the allegations against him begin to reach an adjudication level. I mean, the Gruden case could be a perfect example of the unintended consequences of the discovery process and how they could lead back to Dan Snyder. So if I were Snyder, I wouldn't necessarily be making plans for 2024 or 2025 just yet. He's got a lot on his plate legally right now, and I could envision a situation in which he's no longer the owner of the Washington Commanders two years from now. Okay, so I'm good to move on in this, Dan. Before we move over to the Gruden stuff, a reminder this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Many of you have started your bar prep this week. I saw a tweet that I thought would be fun to read on the show. 
so this is a tweet from a friend of ours if you and a listener of ours you'll know he'll know exactly what this is but i'm just going to read a verbatim quote less than a week into bar prep and definitely should have picked themis over blank you guys can fill in the blank we are not allowed to say blank on the show dan that's part of our contractual obligation to themis but people are certainly regretting it and then a friend of ours John Nucci, who you guys have heard on the show, we sent the, some people have seen it on social media. We started to print, uh, made a select few amount of shirts, kind of detrimental shirts. And we sent them to people that have uh, appeared on the show that have contributed. I think the number we use is 10 articles to the site. So John Nucci, uh, outgoing sports president at Penn State. He sent, I uh, said, big thank you to Conduct Detrimental for the t-shirt and to their partner Themis for keeping me on track while studying for the bar. So let's just say Themis, Dan, is very happy that we've converted a lot of people to themicism. Can we make up that word, Dan? Themicism? Is that, is that, does that sound right? Themology? I don't know. Themology. Ooh, Dan, that was great. Reminder for those that are signing up for the bar next year, themisbar.com slash con, detrimental best bar prep company in the galaxy. Okay, Dan, time for you to take your victory lap. I was on here and I'm like, eh, you know, Gruden, the case is going to get kicked out of arbitration. And then it's probably going to happen in the Flores case. But Dan, all of a sudden, that Gruden decision tree was, was incorrect. Gruden's case remains in court. Dan, go ahead, take your 50 lap, dunk on me, do whatever well, you need to do. You are right. Uh, no, I mean, there were two issues and AJ Perez is going to break it down for us. He attended the court hearing, but I wrote an article for Conduct Detrimental back in early February in which I cast severe doubt on whether a court would allow the National Football League to remove lawsuits brought by Flores and John Gruden into an arbitration overseen and adjudicated by NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, and it raised two basic questions. When the coach signs an employment agreement, he's agreeing to arbitration of any disputes between him and the team. There's no language in that employment agreement that covers disputes with the National Football League, and there was an issue, at least in my mind, as to whether the the suit or controversies against the NFL were even arbitrable within the scope of the arbitration language, and the, the NFL tries to shoehorn the constitution and bylaws language just simply by making reference to it in the in the employment agreement without spelling out that even disputes between coach and league are to be arbitrated before the NFL commissioner that language isn't anywhere in the coaching agreements that we've seen so that's number 1 and then number 2 which is the more important point how on earth can you have an impartial non-biased arbitration proceeding where an employee of the NFL is deciding the merits of tort claims filed against his own employer, which by the way, are paying him in excess of $60 million a year. I mean, that's just a bridge too far. I can understand in the player discipline scenario when you have collective bargaining and the NFL is not adjudicating claims against itself, but adjudicating the correctness of discipline imposed by another league employee. But in that instance, there are no causes of action or fraud claims or tort claims being asserted against the National Football League. So how do you think Roger Goodell would decide a tortious interference lawsuit brought for millions of dollars Wait, against me. the NFL? Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Is that, is, is that something that would be, uh, uh, in your mind, you know, proper and, and, and not a biased situation? Right. I think Roger Goodell, who's, uh, his tenure with the NFL is being put up to vote. The owners are going to decide this. I, I think it's probably good for him to side 
with the NFL, his job security probably depends on it, Dan. I would so, so, so. So, so, so then how could you have ever or anyone else have ever taken the position that this dispute uh, should go before Roger Goodell, given the fact that these are claims that are asserted against his own employer? Well, well, hold on, hold on. It's not to say that that was fair, but it's just been what's what's happened previously, right? In CBA deals regarding player discipline, with there being no causes of action or claims for money damages against the NFL. The procedure has not been fair. I think the I think the NFL is one of the only leagues, as far as I'm aware, that even has this mechanism built in. But, you know, I, I just I figured some people defer to the NFL. This this judge wants to keep it in their courtroom, which is great for us, which I'm, not, I'm yeah. happy that you're right. I'm happy that you are. Uh, well, we don't get quite the visibility in Nevada state court that we get in New York federal court. So this is not necessarily you know going to open up the floodgates for being able to peek into the court filings. You said, still... it was on, you said it was on Facebook Live. That That's pretty visible. It wasn't a court feed. It was a news media organization feed. And the sound of the audio was so terrible. It sounded like sounded like somebody snuck in a 1970s era tape recorder <laughs> with a cassette tape and hit the record button. I actually, when I reported the, the, the court ruling, I had to couch or, or qualify my tweet by saying, I think I heard the judge say, you know, motion denied. I'm not entirely sure, but I think she said this. And a couple of the buzzwords that she mentioned to me, and and we haven't seen a court ruling yet because this was a ruling from the bench. And as Mike Florio pointed out on on Pro Football Talk last night, it's it's not usual for judges to rule directly from the bench. The, The common refrain is that I'll take the matter under advisement and then issue a written ruling. So the the expediency of the ruling from the bench meant that she had her mind already made up before the oral argument, and it was such a slam dunk winner for John Gruden that there was no need to further deliberate after oral argument. But I'll I'll, I'll provide a slightly different take on that. I've practiced in state court, as have you. It's just a different deliberative process. Most of the oral arguments that I've participated in in the state court system oftentimes you get a ruling from the bench. And in this instance, you know, Judge Alf had the motions in her possession for nearly half a year. The first one, I think, was filed in November or December. The reply was filed or opposition was filed in January. She had been marinating over this for half a year. So oral argument really is the opportunity not to, you know, win the case necessarily, because the, the real issue is, did the judge have, are there any issues that the judge wanted to address? And it's an opportunity to, to shift the judge's thought process on areas where she might have some concerns, but it was a cold bench. She didn't ask a single question, but she did highlight, at least from my vantage point, given my hearing, that she believes that there may have been some procedural and substantive unconscionability around that agreement, meaning one-sided, unfair, biased. And I think the court ruling will likely reflect that. So I'll take the victory dance and any any of the lawyers out there on Twitter who threw out the idea that the ability to appoint a designee removes the taint should have, you know, that that was never a colorable argument because he's just going to employ a lackey. But we've got to talk about the appeal and and what that will do to the discovery process. But Dan, I'm I'm sorry, Go, go ahead. Before we get there, I mean, we, we, you mentioned it at the top, right? If this case proceeds with discovery, 
we're probably right going to have a, a maybe an uncomfortable conversation about who leaked the emails. That was the big that was the big decision, and and I think Gruden's attorney paints a picture that the NFL was the clear leaker that the that Washington gave the emails these six hundred these you know inappropriate emails from Gruden. They gave them to the NFL. But the picture that's painted by Gruden's side, and I and I imagine you and AJ are going to talk about this. But Gruden's attorney here is accusing the NFL of leaking those emails. That's the whole point of the tortious interference with the contract that they leaked the emails and. You know, um, we will see. Right. There was some allegations early on that Snyder, Dan Snyder in Washington was the ones directly speaking to The Wall Street Journal, to The New York Times. But that's not going to be Gruden's position in this case. It appears that he's going to say that the NFL directly leaked those emails. Why the motivation behind that? Certainly, uh, you know, uh, we we will see. But um, Dan, what's the NFL's position today? I imagine they're fighting this in some way, shape, or form. Well, well, they're not. They weren't just seeking dismissal, but they made some factual statements in their motions and in their reply briefs, in which they unequivocally denied being the source of the the leak to the media organizations. Now, you can parse that a thousand ways. If the NFL as a party or as an entity is making the denial, well, that doesn't necessarily preclude Roger Goodell, but Roger Goodell is also defendant in this lawsuit and he's represented by the same law firm. So I would imagine that the representation that the NFL isn't the source of the leak when Goodell is also represented by the same law firm would seemingly cover Roger Goodell as well. And if you and if you go through the process of elimination, there aren't really, you know, I'm not saying all fingers are going to point to Mr. Snyder, but that is certainly a viable possibility. So now where are we? We have this denial of arbitration, the denial of the motion to dismiss, the discovery seemingly would be about to commence, but not so fast. The uh, denial of a motion to compel arbitration is an appealable interlocutory order. You know, Dan, normally, as you know, in litigation, you got to wait until the end of the case before you can file an appeal because appellate courts don't want to deal with piecemeal appeals. Three, four of them, they say get a final judgment and then take your appeal from a final judgment. But arbitration denials are in the rare classification of interlocutory or non-final orders that you can take to an appeal immediately. And the rationale for that is pretty obvious. If if you're taking the position that this case shouldn't even be tried in court, we shouldn't have to devote time and expense to discovery in a trial. Well, if you're being told you've got to wait until the end of the lawsuit before you can appeal, you've just gone through a wasteful multi-year litigation process. So the appellate courts in most states and under federal law permit parties to take an appeal to uh, an early stage denial of a motion to compel arbitration. And more importantly and crucially, from a discovery perspective, the NFL will be seeking a stay of discovery during the entire lifetime of the appeal. And this could go on for a year. And the standards for granting stays of discovery under Nevada law are more relaxed than they are in other state courts. You essentially, or or Gruden is going to have to show a substantial likelihood that he's going to win on the appeal over the arbitration issue. So that's something that bears watching. And the, the assumption is we're going to get these documents and Gruden is going to be able to find out who did what within a matter of weeks or months. It could be six months or more, depending upon whether the appellate court grants a stay of discovery. That's the next critical ruling that's going to occur in the case. 
I'm sure the uh, Brian Flores litigants are going to be watching that very closely, as will we. Okay, Dan, as we mentioned at the top, you uh, spoke directly with A.J. Perez, who was in the courtroom. He has some interesting thoughts on the case. So with that said, let us kick it over to your discussion. A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports. We've got a special edition of Conduct Detrimental today. On Wednesday, May 25th, the, the lawsuit brought by John Gruden versus the National Football League was heard in the Clark County District Court in Las Vegas, Nevada, on the National Football League's motion to compel arbitration and the motion to dismiss for failure to state a cause of action. So the league brought two motions to get the case kicked out of court. Joining us right now is front office sports reporter, analyst, writer, AJ Perez, who's been a frequent guest on Conduct Instrumental. He, he actually flew out to Las Vegas and went to, the, went to Judge Nancy Alf's courtroom to watch the proceedings in person. So AJ, I'll kick it over to you initially. I mean, I think we know the result. Can you tell us exactly what happened in a little bit more detail? And thanks for joining us as well. Yeah, the hearing lasts about 90 minutes. The first thing on the docket was a motion to compel arbitration, which she didn't buy. Um, it was pretty clear that the, the fact that Gruden sent the emails before he was an NFL employee, this was while he was an ESPN analyst, and the fact that the fact that he was terminated, you know, the judge seemed to on both these, on both the motion to uh, compel arbitration and the motion to dismiss, those are very key factors in this, and that she ruled pretty quickly. And I was an, ex- you know, I was well. Sometimes judges go back and think about it, and then you wait on the on the court file system to see to see what the decision was. But she was pretty pretty clear that this is going to stay into her court for now. And obviously, the NFL could appeal both those decisions today. And the NFL has been known to do that in many, as we saw in St. Louis and other cases. So yeah, we'll see. We'll. It looks like it's, it's going to move forward, and I think uh, we'll get discovery maybe in the next several months we'll, if this case proceeds and there's no settlement between them. Yeah, one important point, you brought up the appealability of, of the rulings. Generally speaking, denials of motions to dismiss can't be appealed, but m- denials of motions to compel arbitration are considered to be non-final orders that can be immediately appealed in the state court system. So I think you hit upon the next move by the National Football League. They're going to seek appellate review. I don't know if it goes directly to the Nevada Supreme Court or there's some intermediate state appellate court in Nevada. So that's a really interesting angle. I want to go back to the judge's rationale. This is not federal court where we wait for the full opinion being released on PACER. This is, you know, there's really not that much transparency on, on the docket. So we're very heavily reliant on what the judge says in open court. So on the issue of the timing of his termination, as well as the timing of the emails, did she rule that the dispute itself did not fall within the scope of the arbitration clause? Yes. And uh, and especially since, you know, how do you arbitrate when you're getting fired or getting forced out? I mean, that that was seemed to be key. The whole the, the, the whole timeline, you know, between and uh, there there was a lot of talk, uh, especially by Adam the lead lawyer for uh, for for Gruden, basically who still alleged two or three times in court today that the NFL and Goodell leaked the documents and basically created this whole this whole scenario where well Mark Davis initially the the first story which is which dealt with the Morris Smith with the racist trope that was published by the Wall Street Journal you know that didn't get him fired so um, you know Gruden's legal team said in court today you know so the NFL went a step further. And released more emails, and those appeared. Those were the sexist and homophobic emails that the New York Times published three days later. And within hours, Gruden resigned under pressure. And there was the fact that he settled with Mark Davis for an undisclosed sum. The owner of the Raiders, you know, the NFL tried to use that, saying, "Well, you know, this 
he settled with them. You know, he should, uh, you know, he was bound. He, he's, even though he settled with them, he's yeah. still bound by the conduct detrimental provision under the uh, NFL bylaws. Well, how did she deal with the issue of, okay, the arbitration provision that was in his contract simply bound Gruden to have arbitration of any disputes with his team, right? It's, a, it's an employment agreement between Gruden yes. and the Raiders. And any arbitration clause would sort of encompass those employer-employee disputes, and they would be resolved by Commissioner Goodell. I get that. But this lawsuit was brought by Gruden against the National Football League. And I think what the league was arguing is that there was standardized uh, language in the NFL Constitution and bylaws that was integrated or at least incorporated by reference in the employment agreement where it it doesn't say all disputes with the NFL will be arbitrated by Goodell, but Mm -hmm. it actually bootstraps indirectly some of the language in the Constitution and bylaws. How did the judge, I guess, divide the issue in thinking about it as Gruden versus NFL, you know, controversy? Was that central in any way to her reasoning? Yeah, she spoke really softly, and I'm still going through the audio because I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't I even hear it. I mean, I was listening yes. to it on Facebook. So, uh, it was like so, somebody yeah. snuck in a tape recorder. Yeah, so I'm going through it. But yeah, she seemed that the NFL was arguing today in court that they have an interest in keeping any racist, misogynistic, homophobic, you know, any, any employee who promotes that they have, they have the right to sanction them or to, you know, obviously terminate them. And that's kind of detrimental. And that's covered by everybody who's an NFL employee, including the, including the players. The fact that he sent the emails before he was a head coach, the fact that he was terminated, he was basically, I don't know, he was, he was, he resigned, but you can almost say he was effectively terminated because of the leaks. And uh, so it, it and while we would love to know where they came from, and NFL denies it was from them, and I think that's not even the biggest part of the case right now. I think that the judge found that the the timeline mattered more than who you know who leaked these uh, and why. And I think that that was it. I think that was the, even though the the there's a lot of arguments in court today about you know about on both sides about you know where you know where the, where the NFL Constitution and bylaws starts and ends. I think that the the timeline. Of of how it all went down, and including when those emails were sent, were pretty were pretty crucial. All right, I followed your timeline today on Twitter, and maybe I made more of this than you intended, but you included a, a disclosure that came from the NFL's outside counsel. Uh, I don't know if he was pointing the finger at the Washington Commanders, but he indicated that the Washington Commanders were the entity that disclosed these emails to the NFL and it didn't come through Beth Wilkinson's investigation. It was reported directly by the commanders at the time, the Washington football team. How significant was that? And what do you think that means? Is it suggestive that maybe Dan Snyder is behind this? I don't know if it was Dan Snyder. I, th- I think this was all, you know, these were all procured during the Beth the, during Beth's investigation. And, uh, but I would just, I, it was, maybe it was just me. I have to go back to look through all my reporting before. I, this is the first time I've heard like the providence of the emails, where they came from. You know, obviously the NFL had them. I didn't, and they were, they, they could have released them to somebody and they still have them, you know, but the, but the, but the kind of the intermediary, like yeah. who was, who, how did the NFL get them? And the, and apparently it was, I don't know how the, how the servers work in the NFL. If, if it's, if it's, if, if every team has its own server at the NFL.com domain or, 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 or the league office has, has those uh, and can just request those yeah. to, from the team. It could have just been produced as part of a massive document dump and not necessarily singled out by individuals yes. looking to tarnish John Gruden or, or Bruce Allen. So maybe maybe I read too much into that. Yeah, uh, I, I have to go back and listen to that again because that, 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 was very, that, that was very interesting to me that, that it was yeah. – 
you know, this does link back to the commanders. I'm not saying Snyder okayed the IT guy to give the NFL the uh, the emails. That was for so far from that. But you know, they that's what the lead attorney for the NFL said today that it was you know they got these from the commanders. Okay, I want to go back to a central theme. You know, I've been writing for months that there's a snowball's chance in hell that uh, a Nevada state court judge will kick this over to private arbitration because you're asking you're asking a court to accept the notion that an NFL employee can be the adjudicator of claims brought against his own employer, you know, like tort claims. There, there's an inherent conflict of interest there. And I've written about this and I wasn't surprised by the result, but when I listened to the playback or listened to the live court feed, I heard her, Judge Alf, use the words procedurally and substantively unconscionable. Did Judge Alf speak at all to the issue of the unfairness or the conflict of having an NFL employee be the arbitrator of tort claims being brought against the NFL, which by the way, pays this employee 60 plus million dollars a year. Did that bother her or seem concerning to her? Her rulings were so concise that she didn't really weigh into that part of it. Both rulings took less, about a minute and a half for her to, to discuss. And the only time she piped in was when she only piped in really once or twice during it. And it's like, you know, and, and she and she come, made the comment that these emails were sent before he signed the contract and I having brackets to become the Raiders coach. That was the only time she piped in. She was kind of very, she just kind of matter of factly made those rulings um, and didn't really give us too much of a glimpse into why uh, outside of, uh, you know, she did state some, you know, that, that, that state law kind of, you know, over, kind of took precedence, obviously, over, over the NFL's constitution and arbitration in this case. Yeah. Uh, did there, uh, was there any indication from Judge Alf that she's going to issue a written opinion? I imagine she has to because if the NFL is going to appeal something, you can't just appeal yeah. moral, uh, you know, I guess, owner tenant, whatever they call that. I haven't litigated in two years. I forgot the, I forgot the Latin name, but th this, this ruling has to be reduced to writing. Did she give any indication as to the timing of the release of her ruling? She spoke so softly that I, she may have, but I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, but yeah, I, I would expect one within, within a week, just so like you said, that if the NFL decides, especially if, for the motion to compel arbitration, if they want to appeal that part. So what's, so AJ, what's coming up next? You know, we're obviously facing the next, you know, gauntlet, which is discover, okay, the NFL is going to appeal the arbitration dis, uh, ruling and maybe the motion to dismiss if they can. Motion so to what, seal is going to be next. Yeah. Uh, wait a second. Was there another uh, motion that she heard today on the motion to no. seal records? Okay. No, there, there was, there, there was an initial motion right when court started. It was a motion to seal. They didn't seal the NFL bylaws, which is open record anyway. I mean, we already have access to that. There was some other employment. I think there was, and it was very, this was, you know, it was very early on. It was, it was, a, there was a motion to some employment information. I think that was like some kind of details that were, that were sealed. It was, but it was not, it, it, it didn't go into everything. So. Okay. So the next step, Besides the appeal is going to be the march forward towards discovery. Uh, did she discuss with the parties anything in the nature of a schedule, a timeline for discovery? Did the lawyer for, for John Gruden indicate what he was prepared to do next and when? No, there was no, uh, she didn't lay out the, the schedule. I expect that'll be kind of input into the system within the next few days, the next hearing. Um, and uh, there was no other timetable set. Uh, and as far as the lawyers talking, neither side talked to me afterwards. I'm still hopeful that that Gruden's lawyer, um, you know, I, I talked to Gruden briefly. That was, that was cool. I, I, I approached him in front of the elevators and got yelled at by the court staff who I was like, well, I'm from out of town. You can't, I have no idea what your rules are. It was, I love, you know, that's all. What, what are the rules? You can't, you can't talk uh, to well, a person. Some, uh, some, 
yeah, you can't do interviews in, 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 in the hallway, which, which I've known there's that that's the rule at several courts around the nation, but I've never covered anything here in Nevada that I remember in person. So I can just claim, um, you know, I had no idea. The judge spoke very infrequently during the proceeding. And when she did speak, her voice was kind of faint. Was there anything in the nature of a hot bench where she uh, asked the lawyers questions during their argument? There, there were a couple of questions asked, but it was kind of their, their brief and uh, they, and I maybe one, and like that was, then she just made a couple points during it, but she was basically just let them, let, 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 let the NFL talk, let Rudin's lawyer talk and the rebuttal from the, then the, the NFL lawyer. And that, that was it pretty much. It was uh, you got, you know, you got, that was the same way it played out. The motion to compel was took a little longer than the motion to dismiss, which makes sense since, you know, there were a lot of the same arguments. Um, so that was, uh, so that was that. And uh, now we're kind of in, in, in a place waiting for the next step here. Well, the next step is going to take quite a while. I mean, you might have just uh, witnessed the only significant in-court proceeding in the Gruden versus NFL case for the balance of 2022, because the rest of it is just going to go through the discovery process and it won't surface in the court again unless there's a discovery motion or a motion for summary judgment. But I think the MSJ motion would probably be sometime next year. They may need a lot of runway to conduct discovery. So the next real in-court proceeding might be the appellate oral argument on the motion to compel Mm -hmm. arbitration. So any chance you're going to stay in Las Vegas for the next couple of months waiting around for it? I mean, it's very, (laughs) Uh, I I, I know you had to make a huge sacrifice to, to go to Sin City. So you don't look like you're staying at, at the Win Encore. I'm looking at the background in your hotel room. What kind <laughs> of American budget do they give you? I'm, I'm a, no, no, no. I, I, I'm a good one. But it was, uh, you know, with the, with this was not a cheap trip with the with as you know the price of flights right now. But uh, it was one. It was something. It, I think it was crucial to be here. And I'm also covering a couple other things here. And I'm going to go trying to poke around LA to get some stuff on the Angels next. So. We'll see okay. what goes on. We'll enjoy the rest of your oh, time oh, in Las breaking, Vegas. Oh, I'm so- breaking up. Uh, one second. One second here. I just okay. got something from the NFL. Let me see what it is. Breaking news on our podcast. Which yeah. Release right. quickly. So, all right, here we go. We, uh, from the NFL statement, uh, we believe Coach Gruden's claims should have been compelled to arbitration and we will file an, an appeal in, in uh, we'll, we'll file an appeal of the court's determination and the court's denial of our motion to dismiss is not a determination on the merits of John Gruden, of Coach Gruden's lawsuit, which, as we have said from the outset, lacks a basis in law and the fact that proceeds from a false premise, neither the NFL nor the commissioner leaked the Coach Gruden offensive emails. So that's, I can put that in my story now. I'll tweet that out. So, yeah, I mean, they could appeal, you know, to the Mars Supreme Court. I think the judge got it right in the first instance, but this this decision, even a denial of, of a motion to compel arbitration, is immediately appealable. I expect the NFL to take their shot at it. This has some down the road consequences because Brian Flores is going to be facing a similar motion in the class action lawsuit that he brought against the NFL and the, the other 32 teams. And right now, and also, only, I mean, yeah. and, and this is going to be huge. This is going to be huge for the commanders. I mean, if they get all those emails, you know, this is going to put, that's why there's this, all the speculation over the years, about over the years, over the last several months of who leaked these emails, was it, was it Snyder? Was it Goodell? You know, it, you know, if, if it points back to one of the two, it's going to put Snyder in a lot more jeopardy, at least a, a long suspension, if not, Oh, no, no, no. Suspension is forget it. They're going to go right to go and he's going to be terminated uh, or forfeiting his ownership interest. Yeah, it takes, you know, I think there's a, and I think a long suspension or the alternative is giving is kicking Snyder out kind of like what they did with DeBartolo yet. Well, DeBartolo had his, had his sister take over the team, 
will this mean Tanya is going to take his wife going to take over the team, which nobody really wants. Sibling, I don't sibling so. is less immediate than, than your uh, yes. significant other. Your sister's not insignificant, but that's just yeah. a different family. Uh, a topic yeah. for another day. Uh, yeah. But there are definitely a lot of consequences that could befall certain parties if this case moves forward. The impact on the Flores case, the viability of Goodell serving as an arbitrator anytime the NFL is sued. I mean, that's definitely in play here because you have now the Gruden decision. You have a, a, a state court decision in New York, which held the, that Major League Baseball couldn't serve as an arbitrator for tort claims being brought against them. I, mean, I, th I think the league tried to have... Manford, Rob Manford, serve as the arbitrator for tortious interference claims brought by the Staten Island Yankees against MLB and the New York Yankees. And a state court judge said, no way, that's a conflict of interest. So the only two cases on point suggest that a sports league commissioner could never serve as an arbitrator when there yeah. are tort, you know, tort claims brought directly against his employer. So it's a very important precedent moving forward. AJ, Thank you so much for joining us on, on such short notice and giving us the sort of the first deep dive on the inner workings of today's proceedings and, and how it went down. Uh, I thank you very much. And we're going to have you back very soon. So really, really appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your trip in Sin City. Uh, thanks for having me in uh, Virginia in a couple in a few days after I go to see my parents. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, AJ. We'll talk soon. Yeah. So that was AJ Perez of Front Office Sports. You can find him on social media at by AJ Perez. AJ has become one of our go-to sources. We had him on with the Evander Kane stuff, the Snyder stuff. And now we have him on for the Gruden case. Uh, I think in a previous life, uh, AJ was a lawyer. He's very into these legal stories. So AJ certainly a good follow. Okay, so Dan, I think uh, we can start to wrap this up. You know, I've been loving watching the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs. Dan, I know you and I were up late watching the uh, St. Louis Blues Colorado Avalanche series. Reminder, this podcast is sponsored by uh, Underdog Fantasy. Those guys have Best Ball Mania 3 right now. There's $10 million in prizes. And you can play uh, football there. You can play baseball there, hockey there. Use our promo code CONDUCT to get a full match for your first deposit up to $100. Again, that's promo code CONDUCT. Dan, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Underdog, listen, I'm not, I, I don't feel bad about it. Underdog advertises everywhere. They're doing a full advertising blitz. I have a feeling Dan Underdog is going to the moon. So definitely check out Underdog. Yeah. Dan, before uh, we move on, I have, I have a feeling you're rooting for the St. Louis Blues in that series, if I'm judging by your tweets. Am I, am I accurate here? Yeah, I mean, last night's game or whenever we're releasing this, it was game five against Colorado on the road, facing elimination, down 3 nothing on the road in an elimination game. And then, you know, they eventually tie it up. And then, of course, Nathan McKinnon with this sort of, uh, you know, legendary career-defining goal with three minutes to go basically puts the nail in the coffin, or so you think. Miraculously, St. Louis ties it, wins it in overtime, and now I'm officially on the St. Louis you know, bandwagon because out of self-interest and out of loyalty to the market, you know, we've, we've spent so much time covering the St. Louis Rams relocation lawsuit and uh, connected with so many people in St. Louis that I feel like it's our home away from home. But there's now also a selfish motive as the Rangers begin to inch closer to qualifying for the conference finals. They still have to get through Carolina and then beat the juggernaut known as the Tampa Bay Lightning. I don't know how they're going to do that. But I'm envisioning a world in the middle of June in which the New York Rangers are playing at the St. Louis Blues for games three, four, and six in Dan, the Stanley Cup Finals. And we're going to do a live conduct detrimental town hall from St. Louis in the middle of June. And talk about underdog. This is the ultimate 
two-team underdog parley. I mean, what are the odds on something like this? Uh, I don't know if underdog would take that action, but there is my rooting interest. And I'm hoping for a world in which, you know, my professional and personal can intersect and we could just, we could meet all of our friends and fans and colleagues, media colleagues in St. Louis to celebrate the Stanley Cup finals. Long way to go, but I was a little exuberant about that last night. Let us see. I'm rooting for the Rangers. Uh, they got to they got to win a game on the road, though. Carolina is uh, very oh. very frisky at home. Now, you, got, but you got the Stan Kroenke angle, which is incredible, in that the Colorado Avalanche are owned by Stanley Kroenke's, you know, I guess you know, sports holding company, and his team is playing the St. Louis Blues. Well, Can you imagine this, the? I was going to say, wouldn't this be poetic, Dan? Listen, if the Blues can't get it done and we're rooting for the Blues, then we got our Rangers on the other side. Colorado's got to run through the the, yeah. the the team of the podcast, the Rangers, and really our adopted yeah. team, the St. Louis Blues. Yeah. So it's going to be but, a tough road. Colorado's but how, not going to do But how, how much could St. Louis bear as a market to, to lose the team, have that team win the Super Bowl in Los Angeles, and then lose on the hockey side? to the same person's NHL team. I mean, at some point I would think there would be some kind of divine intervention here and create at least an aspect of revenge and some type of, you know, you know karmic justice for the St. Louis market. And maybe the St. Louis blues are the delivery here. And that last minute goal and zero three comeback and overtime goal may have swung the pendulum back in St. Louis's favor. And that would be not as good as having a football team but it would be really uh, uh, just, just such an, uh, an amazing thing for the market to experience, to be able to, to kind of beat Stanley Kroenke at something else. And I, I think it would be a pretty decent consolation prize to win this series and maybe ultimately make the Stanley Cup finals, if not win the Stanley Cup, although I hope the Rangers win. So long way to go. But if it happens... We're going to be in St. Louis for a live town hall conduct, conduct detrimental. And, and the common theme here is Stanley Kroenke keeps resurfacing both on the ice and even in the boardroom. So do you have an update on Mr. Kroenke's uh, dealings with his fellow owners? Well, he keeps resurfacing in those two areas. And also, Dan, he keeps resurfacing in my nightmares. I see, I see Stan Kroenke yeah. all the time. Um, yeah, here's, here's the, the update on, on this front, right? Kroenke, uh, I, I don't know, it's... We, we talked about this. There was an issue with the um, the drafting of this indemnification agreement. So we had a lot of fun, Dan, on, on whether or not costs, the term, whether the, the Kroenke agrees to pick up costs for the other owners, if that means the actual settlement term is he's paying that or he's just paying for legal fees for the other 31 NFL owners relating to that relocation lawsuit. So here's at least the last that I've heard, and Dan, you can tell me if there's been an update, that um, is part of this $790 million settlement that the other 31 NFL teams had to each contribute $7.5 million. If you do the math, 7.5 times 31 gets you to right around $230 million. I believe, Dan, it is still in dispute as to whether or not these NFL owners are going to get repaid their $7.5 million each. So again, that's $230 million. So I, listen, I don't, I don't know. I, I Certainly reasonable minds can differ. If Kroenke is going to have to pay back this $230 million, certainly he could afford it. But I, as we've spent a lot of time talking about on, you know, the, the Washington Commander saga, I don't think you want to be in the business of, uh, we'll say, I'm going to say stealing money or taking money away from your other NFL owners when your your fate as an NFL owner could come down right to, to you know, the rest of that room. So I, I yeah. hope that gets worked out. 
Well, here's the reality, Dan. Roger Goodell is ultimately going to decide that issue. So it's not going to see a courtroom. But I think Stan Kroenke, on the one hand, might be right. I mean, anyone who practices in federal litigation is is awfully familiar with the concept of, of costs and reimbursable costs under the federal rules of civil procedure. Costs do not mean damages. And this indemnification agreement was uh, drafted, I guess, in a rush or over a weekend uh, during the sort of the course of vote taking. And it defines the scope of the indemnification as consisting of costs and litigation expenses. Crucially, the word damages appears nowhere in this indemnification agreement. And as a first year associate, and I'm sure there are many of you out there who've seen indemnity agreements, they always invariably include the word damages. So on the one hand, uh, if you look at the four corners of the document and the plain meaning of the words cost and litigation expenses against the backdrop of how those terms are defined elsewhere, I think Stanley Kroenke has a very good argument for why he should not be funding the settlement amount and there should be an allocation among the owners, uh, I guess, over and above the amount that he had privately agreed to fund. But on the other hand, I'm looking at it from the other uh, NFL owners you know, perspective, no way in hell they would have re- approved a relocation from St. Louis to Los Angeles if they, if they knew they were going to be on the hook for seven and a half million dollars. And if you could go back in time and tell these other owners, well, this is going to be your obligation if you approve the relocation. I don't think any of them, except for Jerry Jones, would have approved it, which brings to mind the purpose of this indemnification agreement. And I, I can't think that billionaires around this room, the 32 billionaires really gave a wit or cared so much about having legal fees indemnified. I mean, how much could it have been in worst case scenario if this case goes to trial? $15 million in legal fees uh, between 32 owners? I mean, what are we talking about? Half a million dollars per NFL owner? Uh, That's not enough to hold up a potential relocation. So I think when you look at the object of the agreement and what the owners were probably thinking about I believe they were thinking about reimbursement and indemnification of any and all damages and settlement amounts. Unfortunately, the language that was included in the indemnity agreement does not reflect that objective. And it raises the question of whether the agreement is ambiguous, in which case you can consider all these extrinsic pieces of evidence and the intent of the parties, or is that language unambiguous, meaning that you can only look at those words in the context of that agreement, according to their plain meaning. So if this were a court, this were a litigation, we would go through these various analytical threads to make a final determination. But since it's before Commissioner Goodell, who's not a trained lawyer, he's essentially going to do whatever he wants. And if I were Stanley Kroenke, I would probably try to find some kind of accord or compromise with my fellow owners rather than to be adversarial to them. I'm with you. I don't really have much to add on it. We'll see. We'll see what comes of it. Again, uh, people know where Goodell is probably going to side on this, but we'll, we'll see. Dan, I don't have anything else further. The two stories that we're going to watch where people are trying to figure out what topics we're going to hit next. We are obviously always welcome to everyone's suggestions. The United States women's soccer team came to terms in a CBA deal. If everyone is saying that the case is resolved, it does not mean that. The class members in the court actually have to approve of the terms of that CBA, which were, you know, the I guess the when you left court in February, they said, 
the CBA had to kind of have a focus of equal pay. And now the CBA seems to have accomplished that, but the court has not quite signed off on that. And the other one, Dan, uh, that I sent to you that uh, obviously we are watching very closely. Trevor Bauer has his own hearing going on with Major League Baseball that started earlier this week. I have not heard an update on that front. The second we do have an update, you can imagine that's going to be a story that we lead with here. Dan, anything else that we're watching for on the sports law landscape? No, no. My focus going forward is uh, Rangers versus Carolina Hurricanes. And if there's anyone in our loyal St. Louis audience that has blues season tickets, keep me in mind for the middle of June, because I will head out to your city if everything breaks right for both of our respective teams. That sounds uh, like a plan, Dan. Listen, you know, I, I know you've committed me to going to St. Louis. I got two little kids, Dan. So listen, if we have enough support and people are giving us tickets, uh, it's going to be factor into the equation. Um, Dan, I think we can put this in the books for Dan, myself, Conda Detrimental Family. We'll see everyone next time on another episode of Conda Detrimental. Kind of